Well, there's it. Another week is getting ready to wrap itself up as we move into Friday with the sun going down. Yeah, I remember. Wonderful time, Juma. Uh, between Makhrib and Isha, you say 100 times, 100 durood, 70 of your needs in this world and 30 in the Akhirah are taken care of. Uh, tonight is, a, is an auspicious night to make durood. A lot of rewards. Uh, remember, if... Um, you want to see your boat in Jannah before you die? Then recite Aloma Soli Ala Muhammad Wal Ali Alpha Alpha Mera 1000 times. That's one of the benefits of, of Juma night. Uh, tomorrow, after Asr, if you say uh, 80 times, just 80 times, what, uh, what, uh, what a deal that is. Uh, what a profit you get out of this. Say 80 times Aloma Soli Ala Muhammad Abirumi Wal Ali Wasalim Taslima. And you get a reward of Laylatul Qadr. Angels grow tired writing good deeds for you for 80 years. Angels grow tired writing forgiveness for you for 80 years. So keep that in mind. Yeah, this is an auspicious day. This is as good as Eid. Yeah, alhamdulillah. May Allah Ta'ala give us the presence of mind and the grace to make the most of this wonderful day. Amin. And may my ear be, being the closest to my mouth, be the first to hear. Inshallah. Amin. Well, um, what can we say about the JSE today? <clears throat> Things turned around in a typical Mzansi style. Uh, lots of uh, pessimism about global growth coming out after the European Central Bank said it wouldn't maintain its um, the quantitative easing, if you want to call that that, um, its stimulus packages uh, into the European economy because it's simply too sick and tired. Uh, the old man of Europe is Europe itself nowadays. <clears throat> it used to be the Ottoman Empire. Now Europe is the old man of Europe. It's old man, it's old woman of Europe. Grain Europe. Not enough young people coming through. Their markets uh, are not growing. They don't have those huge big markets. Uh, they try and sell their goods overseas and their goods are too expensive. But the cost of living is simply too high in their home countries. Uh, yeah, so there's not much growth coming out of Europe. There's uh, nothing coming out of the United States as well. Uh, although the economy did put on, I think it was around, around about 80,000 workers last month, which is an improvement over the previous month when they only put on 20,000. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, that's also, of course, with five and a half trillion rands worth, uh, trillion dollars worth of uh, stimulus uh, under, under Obama. Uh, you had the top bailouts, so there was another 1.3 billion trillion. So, you know, you're talking about 7 trillion rands worth of, uh, dollars worth of stimulus in the United States. And even with all of that behind it, the United States is still unable to raise its interest rates in order to eat away at its debt that it has. So, well, in actual fact, that also means that it's doom and gloom for the outlooks for the year in terms of global growth. Uh, two of those prime centers of the world economy uh, being on shaky legs. Uh, that means everyone is now starting to prepare for a lean year ahead. And that had an effect or a rollover effect onto emerging markets. And we felt a little bit of it. But South Africa, of course, uh, we're still feeling pretty rampant after that Moody's uh, opinion was uh, issued. Showing we're not that bad. Um, Standard and Poor says they're still not willing to raise uh, their uh, their rating on us from above junk status. We're on the first level of junk status. Fortunately, we're not any lower than that. 
Standard Poor's saying we need a 2% growth average in order to, you know, to break out of our, our current rating with him. And so, well, anyway, it looks like we're going to have a 1.5, 1 1.7% 1 uh, growth this year. But, however, other economists have pointed out, yeah, but, you know, all of those uh, estimates were made before ESCOM had made its application for increases, before the petrol price was going up, before the fuel levy was coming in. So all of those could well cut off 1% growth off our country. So we may actually just eke out like a half a percent growth for this year. So anyway, yeah, um, <clears throat> we've got elections coming up. We've got wage negotiations coming up in uh, the gold mining sector, platinum sector, and uh, the other mining sectors. Yeah, it's, it's wage negotiation time, and that's also always a hairy time. And uh, what was the banya? It, it made more. It, made, it, it increased its wall chest today by something like uh, nearly a billion, billion rands uh, through forward sales of, of its gold. Um, and that, uh, yeah, well, we were speaking about Anglo-Americans gold sales, forward sales yesterday and how it forward sold it, like, well, I think it was around about $280 an ounce and then the, the gold price for the next decade. They'd, so they made that forward sale for a decade and then the gold price shot through the roof and South Africa saw no benefits from that. How much our tax authorities, uh, our tax man lost as a result of that, I would, I would hate to know. Uh, but uh, here's the money making forward sales. Um, uh, but uh, but this is uh, just in order to build up its uh, its war chest uh, because it sees uh, um, a really hard uh, negotiating season coming up. Amku has just been displaced as a majority union at Sabanyu, uh, Sabanye. And uh, that means that they're going to be very, 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 very angry. Of course, that also means that the National Union of Mine Workers is now going to have to be on its toes in order to show to its members that they're able to look after their interests better than AMCU. That means they've got to be a bit more firebrand than AMCU has, has been over the last while, and that's been pretty, pretty hot. So, uh, yeah, um, Mining production figures coming out uh, today showing that um, production figures uh, continue to nosedive. Fortunately, however, an uptick in prices uh, saw uh, the value uh, for our commodities increasing by 10.6%. So it didn't work out all that badly. We mined less, but we made more money. That's usually a good way of going about things. So, yeah, I suppose we could celebrate a little bit, but we have to admit that the underlying conditions are hardly uh, giving cause for optimism going forward. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a troubled sector, um, and uh, I, I guess it always has been and probably is always going to be. All right, well, anyway, the tail of the tape on the JSE today says uh, it's up 0.39% at the close, 58,186.19 uh, is the all-share index, the top 40 index finishing on 51,942.03. That's 0.42% up. Uh, the dollar um, has made gains against the rand today. We're on 14 rand to the dollar at the moment, so it's a, it's a slight little gain, 0.64%. Uh, we're on 1831 to the pound at the moment, uh, down 0.58, and um, on 15.76 against the euro. Against the uh, Turkish lira, we're on uh, 2 rand 44, same as yesterday. <clears throat> we're still at the same as we were against the Japanese yen on 13. And against the Australian dollar, we made a, um, a slight loss of ground. Uh, we're just above 10 rand, uh, 
to the Australian dollar. Oh, that's horrible. Because, because you know, in, in in essence, Australia is in the same kind of uh, boat that South Africa is in, in terms of uh, the carry trade. Uh, but you can see that uh, their currency dealers haven't been doing the dirty on their currency as much as our own currency dealers have been, and our banks have been. Uh, yeah, um, South Africa is a troubled country. Um, <clears throat> And uh, as I say, if you want to get away from racial tension in South Africa, it's best to just leave the country. Uh, yeah. Okay, so um, coming up uh, after, a little bit late in the show, we've got Pravin um, has been uh, summoned uh, over the rogue spy unit by the public protector. One has to ask, is this the rogue state fighting back? Uh, the latest public protector appointed by Jacob Zuma. Is she um, uh, showing her party... Her party loyalty is there rather than uh, pursuing her, her job in the national interest. We'll let you think about that one, but we'll be getting to that a little bit later. Uh, we find out uh, what Nedbank's chief executive earned last year. Mining production, as we say, continues nosediving. We'll, we'll dive down into those figures. Uh, manufacturing output is on the up. Sassel Chair takes a back seat. Uh, Africa online retailer Jumia heads for Wall Street. Standard & Poor says the ANC talks but doesn't walk left. It, doesn't, it talks left, but it doesn't walk left. It reckons uh, there's not going to be some heavy uh, land grabs after the May, 6, May 8 elections. Goldman Sachs says ESCOM's unbundling is taking, will take too long and uh, its uh, unbundling isn't going to happen in time to get it out of uh, its debt morass that it finds itself in at the moment. And the Zimbabwe Reserve Bank says that it will be introducing a RIBA rate soon. A RIBA rate, we, uh, the other people call it, we call it the RIBA rate here on our show, my show. Uh, yeah. So, okay, let's get down to business. Uh, Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon has confirmed that a subpoena has been served on him by the public protector in relation to the so-called SARS rogue unit. Now, this is just on the same day as... Um, <clears throat> as uh, oh, the guy's name has just uh, slipped my mind. Uh, the guy who was Ippard, um, Robert McBride, has just been given evidence that the state capture inquiry is saying the stories about the road unit were 100% fabricated. Now we've got our finance, our public enterprises minister being hauled before the public protector on what we now know are, are completely fabricated grounds. It, it, it really doesn't smell nice, does it? Who is in actual fact control of South Africa's government? One really has to ask. Um, Gordon said uh, after the subpoena had been served in him, the same set of allegations have been investigated repeatedly by various institutions, including the Office of the Public Protector itself in 2014, and no conclusive evidence could be found of any legality by the South African Revenue Services or Minister Gordon. That's according to his spokesperson, Ad Adrian Lackey. Uh, Lackey said the subpoena had been leaked to the media while the minister was still busy. <clears throat> Uh, counseling, uh, cons consulting his counsel to determine uh, what kind of legal response he should uh, raise. Uh, he says that this clearly amounts to persistent harassment of Gordon and flagrant abuse of office. And I must say, 
that uh, that strikes me as being that way. He says this is also another example of a fight-back campaign to disrupt efforts to uncover and prosecute instances of malfeasance and corruption in various entities of government. They should, in actual fact, get somebody who, I wonder who would qualify to uh, investigate uh, the public protector when you need protection from the public protector. Who can investigate the public protector? Imagine going in and saying, okay, give us the, the, give us the telephone calls made to your cell phone the night before you issued the summons. I'm sure that would make for a very interesting reading, wouldn't it? Uh, like he says, we must once again call on the South African public to connect a new set of dots and get an appreciation <clears throat> for the determined efforts to distract public opinion from the broad attempts to ensure clean governance in our country. Yeah, so there you go. Okay, well, I reckon they've said it well enough themselves. Uh, Nedbank uh, has released its annual report for 2018 that reveals just how much the executives earned, including Nedbank Chief Executive Mike Brown. The annual report shows Nedbank paid its <clears throat> top six executives a total of 210.2 million rands in 2018, an average of 35 million rand per executive. Chief Executive... Uh, Mike Brown received uh, the best take-home pay of 53 million rands. Hmm, not bad. 53 million rand package includes a guaranteed 8.5 million rand basic pay, a cash bonus of the same amount, just for the because we like you, Mike, a short-term incentive payout of 16 million rands, just to keep you happy over the short term, and a long-term incentive of 16.5 million rand, at face value. Well, there you go. Just because they like his face, I suppose. Anyway, right, so getting on to mining production. Uh, its slump has continued with uh, production decreasing by 7.5% year on year in February. January saw a 3.3% decline year on year, following a 4.1% decrease in December and a 5.2% decrease in November. Uh, I think Sabanya's woes may have a lot to do with that. Uh, Neil Foreman has admitted that the ongoing strike there, or that has been declared illegal, um, has hit their production severely. Stats South Africa said today that the largest negative contributors in February were diamonds, gold, and iron ore. There must have that Sabanya there. Uh, with diamond production dropping by a total of 48.3% and contributing a minus 3.2 percentage points compared to the previous month. Gold was down 20.6%, wow, and contributed minus 3 percentage points. Iron ore with a decline of 20.7% contributed minus 2.9 percentage points, according to Stats SA. Platinum Group Metals, however, despite the depressed platinum price, you've had um, a stronger rhodium and... Um, um, Palladium price uh, over the last year, palladium price shooting through the roof, uh, with an increase in production of eighteen or seventeen point eight percent. That's in total production, contributing two point eight percentage points overall. Mineral sales, however, that's not mineral production. This is the price that you got for your production. The price that we got went up by 10.6% due to higher prices year-on-year year in February, with the largest positive contributors being platinum group metals, manganese ore, and iron ore. PGMs rose by 36% and contributed 5.6 percentage points, while manganese ore rose by 44.6% uh, and contributed 3.5 percentage points. Iron ore rose by 21.3% and contributed 2.7 percentage points. 
Seasonally adjusted production decreased by 1.5% in February compared to January, uh, following month-on-month changes of 0% in January and minus 1.5% in December. In the three months in the quarter ended February 2019, compared to the previous three months, mining production decreased by 5%. Here, two diamonds and gold were the biggest negative contributors. In the three months, however, the seasonally adjusted value of mineral sales rose 4.4%. So we produced less and we got more money out of it. So really, in the first three months of the year, we are slightly ahead, but only by a nose, I suppose you could say. We can hardly, um, um, well, start celebrating right now, can we? Uh, South African gold production shrank that that, that uh, declining gold production was the 17th straight month that uh, that gold production has shrunk, and that's the longest string of contractions since the financial crisis in 2008. Gold output fell 21% from a year earlier compared with the revised 23% drop in January, uh, Stats SA says. Um, South Africa used to be the world's top producer of the metal. We accounted for more than half of all the gold ever mined throughout the history of mankind. But we've got deeper ore bodies, the labor strife, high costs and policy uncertainty. That's all hitting output. Uh, strike by AMCU that started in November has slashed output at Sabanya Gold. Sabanya is challenging the legality of that strike, but it's also preparing to pay negotiations with AMCU at uh, for pain, it's also preparing for pain negotiations with Amco's platinum business. Total mining output, well, I guess it's all down. That's a second story I was just reading there, trying to get a little bit of extra out of it. Uh, manufacturing, however, uh, did a little bit better than, than mining. Uh, manufacturing output rose 0.6% year on year in February after an year increasing by revised 0.9% in January. Economists polled by Reuters had forecast a rise of just 0.5% year-on-year in February. On a month-on-month basis, factory production fell by 1.8% uh, in February, according to Stats SA. Sassel says uh, its chairman, Dr. Mandla Ganshaw, will step down after the company's annual general meeting in November. He's said to be replaced by Sipon Kosi, the former chief executive of Exaro Resources. Uh, Sassel says Nkosi will join the group's board on May 1 as an independent non-executive chairman designate to succeed Gancho at the conclusion of the AGM. Uh, Gancho says he's pleased to hand over the reins to a person of Sipo's caliber, says he's confident he will provide the necessary direction and blah, 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 blah that you usually say in these kind of uh, moments. It doesn't really say anything about anything. They could be hating each other's guts. They might actually like have tried to shoot each other this morning. But you'll never see that in a sense announcement. I'm not saying that they did anything like it. I'm just saying that, you know, it's the kind of usual blah, blah, blah that you get in these times. Um, JK and in, uh, board member JJ and Jack, an independent non-executive, said Gansha would leave behind a company that is well positioned to deliver shareholder value. He's led Sassel through up and down global and local economic cycles, as well as the execution of large capital projects um, that have faced challenges, while clearly presenting strategic opportunities for the company's growth. JK also is stepping down after the AGM, by the way. Okay, so now we have Jumia Technologies rising out of uh, the, the highlands of Nigeria. 
It has amassed in the seven years since it was founded 4 million customers. And that number jumped 48% last year. So that means that last year they really started uh, getting into that purple patch, you know. Um, the first few years, uh, you have to, like, get yourself known and you've got to, like, tramp around and introduce yourselves to people and all of that. But once you've got all that hard work and then uh, your your introductions and start making introductions to other people and then the introductions start working on their own, that's when you know that a company is uh, really starting to move into profit territory. And uh, with that, Jumia has announced that they're going to be heading off to Wall Street. Um it's convinced the company's co-founders, former McKinsey and company colleagues uh, Sacha Poignonyak and Jeremy Hodara to pursue an initial public offering in New York this week. It's planning to sell 13.5 million American depository shares at 13 to $16 a share, raising as much as $216 million. The listing is meant to give the company financial flexibility and increase awareness of the brand among investors. Often tagged as Africa's Amazon.com, Jumia has been able to grow in markets largely untapped by the U.S. heavyweight, which is hampered by lack of distribution infrastructure in Africa. To tackle the issues of vague addresses in many African cities, Jumia has built up a network of leased warehouses, pick-up and drop-off locations, and brought in a string of delivery partners to ensure reliable service. Well, there you see, uh, you know, you, you, you get companies, like they, they take a look in Africa and they say, oh, no, there's just no ways we can make money here. But then you've got to sit back and you've got to say, but wait, wait a minute, there are a whole lot of people in there who are making money. There must be ways of making money. It's just you've got to think a little bit differently, kind of out of the box. That's a wonderful thing about living in Africa. It forces you to uh, get out of that little rut, to get out of their comfort zone. Uh, well, we are going to move out of our little comfort zone, moving across for a bit of market news. Don't go away. Maruka Sahaba, the voice, the voice of Ahlus Sunnah wal Jamaah. Assalamu alaikum. Remember, if you want to call in, our lines are open on 010 It's 010 or you can WhatsApp us uh, some suggestions or messages on 084-786-3132. 084-786-3132. Well, I must admit, I'm kind of like wondering, what am I going to be discussing uh, this Saturday? Kind of like wondering if we should revisit Algeria. There's been quite a few developments since we looked at Algeria on my Saturday show at from 3 to 4. Uh, every Saturday. So if you want to find out what this edit is thinking about... Um, uh, the international uh, scene for, for Muslims, uh, please uh, tune in, uh, 3 o'clock to 4 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. Um, there have been some really interesting uh, events happening uh, with the double Islam, the world of Islam everywhere. Uh, in Algeria, Bouteflika stepped down. Um, the generals are saying uh, the people must uh, step behind his uh, chosen successor, Salah. But uh, the street uh, doesn't seem to be very keen with that. The military, however, seems to be determined to maintain some kind of a semblance of order as they move to a new, uh, a new administration. Uh, yeah, today, uh, just uh, today in Sudan, Umar al-Bashir toppled from his throne. Uh, not much has been heard about him. We're all kind of like wondering what has happened to him. Has he swung a deal? Uh, has he uh, fled the country? Is he in Switzerland right now counting his money? 
so yeah, there's a lot of interesting things to discuss on Sudan as well. And uh, yeah, that's uh, it's really interesting. Uh, maybe we can do Sudan and Algeria at the same time. Because uh, there are remarkable similarities in what has been happening over there. Kind of like wonder, you know, are the, are the Europeans getting ready to uh, kidnap the revolution? Uh, as they do so repeatedly. Uh, people are keeping a very close eye on France uh, because France seems to be uh, meddling both in Libya and Algeria at the moment. Uh, people are very suspicious about that. Uh, Khalifa uh, Haidar, who's uh, moving up uh, on Tripoli with his eastern army, uh, has got uh, significant French support behind him. And he's only moving on Tripoli after first seizing control of uh, the desert uh, isolated oil fields in the south of the country, um, very similar to uh, Algeria's oil fields. So, uh, yeah, um, a lot of interesting things happening uh, at the moment. Uh, at the same time, Julian Assange has uh, just been arrested, uh, to, uh, well, arrested in the Ecuadorian embassy today. It's a very dark day for uh, journalism, I must say, around the world. Um, not that uh, we've had many bright days in journalism for like the last, uh, well, ever since uh, the United States uh, invaded Iraq. Um, that seems to have been a seminal point. Uh, journalism just seemed to take a downturn from there as embedded journalists suddenly started uh, uh, sending us uh, their tomes and our newspapers and media outlets started publishing the nonsense. Uh, embedded journalists. So there's just no such thing. It's an oxymoron. You can't be embedded if you're a journalist. You're supposed to be independent. But nevertheless, uh, yeah, um, uh, the rot that we have in our mainstream newspapers nowadays really astounds me. Um, how, how can you continue, like, you know, claiming that you're a newspaper that supports human rights, but you continue, like, quoting uh, French presidents on what they think about human rights and British presidents on what they think about human rights and American presidents on what they think of human rights uh, when they've been uh, – how, how many Muslims, how many Semites have they killed uh, since 2001? I'd really like to know. Um, I reckon it's over 10 million makes uh makes uh the, the the holocaust look like a practice game the jewish holocaust um i'm not one of those people who denies the jewish holocaust because i like to say yes you see this is what the europeans are like this is what they did to the jews can you imagine what they want to do to the muslims and they are doing to the muslims look what they're doing to the muslims they haven't changed at all they go on about oh we must remember the holocaust remember the holocaust but in actual fact they're actually celebrating the holocaust every year um, because, you know, if they re did really remember the Holocaust for the reasons why you're supposed to remember the Holocaust, they wouldn't be killing Muslims uh, as they are nowadays. It's just like this uh, Semite bloodlust uh, just seems to bubble up every now and then. They like to think of themselves as nice, neat, quiet, little pale-faced people, but in actual fact, Deep down inside their hearts, oh, it's a very dark and dirty place, I must say. I mean, uh, this is typical. This is typical. The Holocaust was not an aberration, as the Europeans like to point out and like to, like to depict it. That's why they were shown it up, because you see, like, white people were caught to their pants down for the whole world to see what barbarians they are. But then you had Srebrenica coming along. It's like, yeah, they do it all over again. Uh, really, um... And, uh, yeah, so anyway, France is up to its dirty tricks in um, in uh, Algeria and Libya. 
And uh, who might be up to dirty tricks in Sudan? Well, mm, it may just be the military itself. Uh, the military says that they want to have a two-year uh, transition period uh, to democracy, uh, which, of course, sounds like, uh, you know, after two years, they're going to say, no, we're still not ready, uh, which is what the military usually does. Every now and then we have occasions where the military does hand over as promised, uh, and the people in Sudan say they're not going to accept that. They're not going to accept a state of emergency. They want to go to elections. They want to get a new leader now. Makes makes sense. Uh, of course, you've got a whole lot of... Uh, <clears throat> Sudan is, of course, on the opposite side of the Red Sea to Saudi Arabia. Red Sea is, of course, the main um, trade artery leading uh, into Europe. It's like uh, it's, a, it's Europe's juggler vein. Uh, all of the oil and everything coming there into Europe has to cross, go through the Suez Canal. Uh, and, uh, of course, to get to the Suez Canal, they've got to sail through the Red Sea. Which, which was what makes Somalia and Sudan such key strategic points, you see. That's why Sudan and uh, Somalia are, are targeted. Are targeted. Uh, America has been trying to keep them as failed states for so long. Omar um, Bashir hasn't exactly helped his, his own case. Uh, and, uh, yeah, because you see, um, according to international law, uh, every country is allowed to control uh, the sea off its coastline 200 kilometers into the sea. So, of course, that's well into Saudi Arabian territory, and Saudi Arabian claims for controlling the Red Sea extend well into, like, sort of Sudan um, territory. So that, so that seaway, uh, as long as Sudan is a sixth state and uh, Saudi Arabia is in America's back pocket, Saudi Arabia. I should just call it uh, Arabia. That's um, uh, Winston Churchill wants to call it Saudi Arabia. That's his business. May rot in hell. Um, so yeah, uh, Saudi Arabia is is um, the United States' little um, stool pigeon. And uh, if if Sudan uh, doesn't have any real control over its own government. Uh, and the bigger issues inside Sudan, they don't worry about uh, what's going on in the Red Sea. And as long as Somalia is a, sales, a failed state, they don't demand to control who goes in and out of the Red Sea. There's a very narrow point right there on the Horn of Africa. If Somalia wanted to do, they could stop all traffic, just like that. And these are the kinds of things that America hates. If you go and you look at what Britain did with its navy after winning the Battle of Trafalgar, Straits of Malacca, there, Singapore, there's another blockage point. If you control the Straits of Malacca, which is the world's busiest sea route, then you control trade going in and out of China and Asia in general. Uh, because there's a whole host of those Polynesian islands um, the Philippines and and so on, uh, Thailand and all the, all all of those countries that ring of fire, those islands created by the volcanoes. They they and also you got very sh shallow sea in in those places. So as a result of that, it's it's the Strait of Malacca is like the only direct way to get your trade fast to other countries. So yeah, if you control Singapore, you control the Straits of Malacca. That's what the British were were all about. Uh, that's what the Japanese were fighting them in World War Two. That's because they want to trade, uh, control the Straits of Malacca. So yeah, just like that. And that's why Sudan and uh, Ethiopia, I mean Somalia, are such um, 
are such failed and and states in such a uh, in such difficulties. Uh, of course, France has got like over a thousand special forces uh, permanently stationed in Chad, which is just south of uh, of uh, or next to Sudan, or next to South Sudan now, I suppose. And uh, Chad's leaders have always come from Darfur. Uh, so that's why um, France always sends its aircraft in to bomb the rebels coming out of Darfur trying to take over Chad because they've got a nice oil pumping agreement uh, with Idris Deby. Uh, the, the the acceptable dictator, you know. Um, you kind of like wonder in Africa what kind of democracy we should have. The United States and, uh, well, the, the, the traditional democratic countries – um, you really have to wonder, do, do they really have democracies, you know, where you've got two parties that kind of like can take turns in, in like being the president or the prime minister? Um, you, you, they, they, it's just inevitable that you're going to get collusion between these two. Um, uh, they, 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 they must be, uh, you know, in the, in the deeper state, if you want to call it that, uh, you know, because uh, administrations... Uh, Public officials are there for life, whereas politicians come and go. Politicians uh, sign debts, um, sign loans, uh, they borrow money uh, according to contracts that long outlast uh, their term in government. So by the time that the pigeons come home to roost, the politicians are not there to handle the fallout. And so the bureaucrats start like sort of saying, okay, let's take a longer timeline. What are we going to do when these two administrations are going to mess up things? And so, like, you know, the government within the government becomes a government for itself uh, rather than for the people. Um, and, and and this is why, like, you know, um, they'll come and they'll arrest Julian Assange in Britain and the Brits just kind of like stand there and do nothing about it. There should be like uh, outrage right across the country straight away. Instead, there's not because they kind of like say, well, it's our deep state kind of like managing things in our interests according to facts of which we know nothing. So we're just going to go and uh, get onto my Facebook page and say, Ma, I'm so outraged. And that's as far as it goes. Activism. Um, Two million people in 2003 uh, marched through the streets of London. Each day for two days in a row, four million people in total marched through London protesting against the Iraq war. Tony, Tony Blair said, well, I had a bigger mandate in uh, the last election. So there's only four million people. Uh, I, there's more than four million people voted for me, so I'm not going to listen to them. And, of course, the generals just laughed and laughed and laughed. You know, the people go and they participate in the marches and they wear funny faces and they put body paint on and some women walk around naked and all of those kind of strange things that apparently going to affect public opinion. Uh, public opinion says, okay, we are affected a little bit. And then they switch uh, television stations. All of the people who um, got involved in the so-called activism for the day, uh, when the march is over, they just go home. It's not like they take the march or the energy that they created further. The, the, the generals just sit on the sidelines and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. It really must be funny. No, they're coming here. They're going to protest against the war again. Oh, that's very funny. I mean, uh, what protest against war in, ever in Western history has actually stopped the war? It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. Oh, well, anyway, okay. Uh, getting back to where we were before the uh, commercial break. Uh, we were on uh, mining, we were on Sassel, and then we were on Jumia. On Jumia is now heading off to Wall Street. Uh, it says, um, 
that uh, it plans to um, launch with $260 million worth of shares sold. Uh, okay, okay, we forgot that one. We finished that one. ANC talks uh, might talk left, but it doesn't necessarily walk left, says Standard & Poor's. The Global Rating Agency, uh, during a panel discussion, uh, it's, uh, it's sovereign analyst for South Africa, uh, the guy who's in charge of all of the damage being wrecked by the so-called um, objective rating agency, like journalists are objective. Yeah, Gardner Rusika also says that he's objective. Uh, and uh, he says... Um, the ANC is a moderate party. He says since 1992, since 1994, they might talk left, but they do not necessarily walk left. I'm sure Julius Malema would agree with that. While the ANC is addressing historical wrongs to an extent, it has endured that necessary. It has ensured necessary checks and balances are in place as it pursues land reform. So he says, I don't think the ANC will go ahead and ex expropriate land. If that were the case. We would see it through the weakening of property rights and weaker enforcement of contracts. Expropriation, he says, would be negative for investment and economic growth. But we know that doesn't really mean anything down in South Africa's rural heartland. Um, and that is, in effect, a huge, big black eye for uh, South African development since 1994. Um, we've managed to lift some of the cities, we've managed to lift people out of poverty in the cities, but our rural areas remain neglected. And uh, many places, like you go to places like Hazyview, just outside the Kruger Park, and uh, it's like, there's just like hills and hills and hills and hills are covered with shacks, uh, shacks and houses. <clears throat> and you have to wonder where these people get employment from, uh, how are they staying alive, uh, and a lot of those people were, in actual fact, uh, tenant farmers on uh, white farmers' land who were pushed off after 94. Uh, so, you know, this put, a, put in a huge big um, pressure on township infrastructure and so on. It's not like township infrastructure in South Africa in 1994 was kind of like ready for that kind of blow. And the fact that we our rural heartland remains so far divorced from um, the urban centers, uh, it means that, uh, yeah, we haven't really, as a country, are we, are we really a country? Um, you know, are, are, are we joined, uh, the people of Toyandu? Um, how do they relate to the people of Johannesburg? Um, perhaps, you know, what we need is a good war. You know, as they would say in America, now our country's starting to fall to pieces. We need a war to put everything together. Yeah, well, that's a traditional route to take, huh? Are we going to go to war with someone soon? Well, you know, um, it really does worry me that, uh, you know, that uh, the horrible conditions in the DRC and Rwanda, just, uh, just north of them, are like one country away. We've got Zimbabwe in between us and them. Uh, it uh, it really is a worry. Um, Zimbabwe, there we see the police taking to the streets during a protest in February and beating people up. What happens when, like, say, your consumer base uh, has been so decidedly weakened or wrecked either by government policies or predatory uh, corporations? Um, 
they're not, people aren't earning enough money. They're not paying enough money and taxes over to the government. The government doesn't have any money to pay for roads, to pay for dams, to pay for electricity and so on. And suddenly the government starts running out of money to pay the military. That's where the military suddenly starts turning around and says, well, we're just going to take stuff for ourselves. And when that happens, they start preying on the people. When they're preying on the people, then they start some slave labor, like we got in the DRC, around some of the mines that have been taken over by the generals. You were in Museveni's generals, uh, a whole lot of generals come and taken over mines, taken over forests and uh, timber plantations and so on. And then they go to the local villages and they get the local villages to come and work for free, slave labor. Yeah, well, you know, um, that's what happens when your economy turns down in Africa. It uh, makes for a very ugly reading, I must say. Um, so anyway, Standard & Poor's uh, rate South Africa's foreign currency debt at BB. That's two notches below junk. Uh, two notches below junk, not one, as I said earlier. And why it had South Africa's sovereign rand debt uh, at a BB plus. That's the first rung of sub-investment grade. Rand denominated debt at, at junk. That's debt that we owe to ourselves. That is just like such a lot of rubbish. Um, the fact that we've got such huge Rand denominated debt should make us triple A. Should make us triple A. And remember, this is Standard and Poor's. It was it was rating um, Lehman Brothers as double A. Uh, it rated, gave it a new rating just two days before it sank back in 2008. This is the same people, Standard & Poor's. They rated Lehman Brothers as double A. Uh, they rated uh, AIG, the insurance company, as triple A. Um, it rated Bear Stern also a few days before it crashed as double A. This is Standard & Poor's. I mean, I, I, I was on Channel Islam uh, at the time, and I was warning people that the, this subprime crisis is going to come on, going to crash everything, going to have another Great Depression. Well, the funny thing about that, you know, is that while you're saying that, people are saying you're a conspiracy theorist. And then after it happens, and uh, you say to people, but I said to you beforehand it was going to happen. Then they look at you and say, no, you didn't. You're a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> So, uh, you know, after the first few times that that happened after the 2008 crash, I just stopped telling people that I'd, uh, I'd said it because you see I'd resigned from Channel Islam and moved on to other things. Uh, so, yeah, um, you know, um, it, it, it does make for an interesting little perch, this, uh, you know, a, a business show um, at the end of the day, having a look at things. Um, and then uh, you see things, you say things, you talk about things. Um, <clears throat> It's very strange, you know, um, uh, most of the calls I got from readers were more like, a, you know, uh, when is a good time to buy dollars and stuff like that. Um, didn't really want to talk about uh, the wider issues of business. So anyway, the the JSE's watchdog, uh, the financial services, sec the financial sector conduct authority, the FSCA of the JSE, says it has cleared uh, of wrongdoing three holders of accounts that traded Steinhoff shares ahead of the collapse in its share price in December 2017. 
there were people who sold a lot of shares just before that collapse. Uh, and, uh, you know, in typical financial safety conduct authority ways, they never find anyone guilty of insider trading. Uh, they found they found no reason to believe that any of these shares were traded in contravention of the Financial Markets Act. That's Brandon Topham, uh, the Divisional Executive for Investigation and Enforcement. In all, around 1.7 billion rand was traded ahead of Steinhoff's announcement that it had uh, discovered financial and reporting irregularities. And so before that happened, 1.7 billion rands was sold. The Financial Sector Conduct Authority coming to have a look at it said, no, we can't see anything wrong here. Move along, folks, move along. Uh, so I guess, you know, that should give old Iqbal serve uh, reason for hope as he is supposed to get his IO um, results uh, through to them for a closer examination because it seems these guys are idiots. So uh, really, uh, Iqbal serve doesn't have anything to worry about, if you ask me. The Financial Services uh, Financial Sector Conduct Authority has now investigated and cleared 56 accounts over suspected insider trading of Steinhoff shares. Hi, John. How are you today? Oh, so now we're here to come over and look at it. Did you do that insider trading thing just before? No, 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 it wasn't me. Oh, all right, okay, thanks. Hey, sorry, sorry to disturb. Uh, see you for beers on Friday. That's an FSCA um, investigation. has to be that way. I mean, uh, if it wasn't that way, there would have been more insider trading prosecutions because, of course, it happens all the time. Uh, and it just means that... Uh, the old boy network is still uh, strong and clear. And that's the way it seems to me. The latest three cleared traded over 418 million rands in shares just before Steinhoff tanked. Um, you could say that perhaps the Financial Sector Conduct Authority is in actual fact uh, taking a little bit of a lenient stance towards all of this. Because if they do start prosecuting those people, those people are going to say, what, we were supposed to hold on to those shares when you knew that these crooks had been stealing everything. You're helping the crooks. Uh, it's an argument. It's an argument. I'm sure it's a quite a popular one on the JSE among uh, the, the traders and the trading houses there. What do you do? Uh, people managed to take their shares out just before the uh, share price tanked because uh, of ongoing corruption that the Financial Sector Conduct Authority had not noticed for such a very, very, very long time. Oh, yeah, well, they really, I mean, the Financial Sector, thingamabob, as they call themselves, ah, really, really, it, it, it is a joke. It is a joke. And uh, I reckon Iqbal server can relax because uh, these jokers are not going to be able to find anything. They're going to have to send, uh, send everything that Iqbal server sends them onto uh, the register of companies. Uh, and uh, he's, he's actually uh, seems to have a bit more, uh, or she seems to have a bit more um, common sense than what you've got on the JSC at the moment. Uh, so, yeah. A summary of the PwC investigation into the scandal released by the company last month shows at least $7.4 billion in fraudulent transactions, and it has yet to release financial statements for 2018 and 2017. Can you believe it? No wonder. Financial sector conduct authorities, like still say, no, no, when you guys going to release your results, they say, ah, oh, man, get lost. And they say, all right, man, sorry, we're busy. Okay, we'll come back. Uh, really, uh, what kind of authority is that? I reckon the authority is a misnomer in this particular case. According to Goldman Sachs, yes, Goldman Sachs, the people who made all of the money um, selling collateralized debt obligations 
and then taking out guarantees with uh, AIG, yes, the insurance company that's triple rated by um, uh, by Standard & Poor's, um, the guys we've just been talking about. Goldman Sachs is now also around and is still expressing its opinions, and people are still reporting them. Yeah, I'm even doing it myself. Goldman Sachs is saying it's going to take too long to... Um, to uh, break up uh, ESCOM into three different units of generation, distribution, and transmission. Goldman Sachs uh, sold CDOs to a whole lot of people. Then they took out uh, insurance. Uh, they, you don't have to, and that's the thing, AIG would insure things that people didn't even own. You can go and insure somebody, somebody else's thing. So Goldman Sachs went and sold a whole lot of collateralized debt obligations to the public, a collateralized debt obligation is basically like um, a mortgage has, has got a house as collateral or uh, a car. It's uh, well, you could say it's a bit of collateral. Uh, you've got the car itself, but immediately it starts losing value. But uh, yeah, all, all kinds of um, debts that are backed up with securities. So usually uh, mortgages are safe as houses. That's where the term comes from. Uh, because the person who buys a house wants to look off the house because he's going to be living in it. So therefore, it's supposed to be safe as houses, but of course they're selling junk to uh, people who couldn't ever afford to pay it back, and Goldman Sachs knew it. So it went out and took insurance against the very collateralized debt obligations that it had sold to the public, betting that those collateralized debt obligations would tank, would turn into rubbish. And uh, they took out those, uh, those, uh, that insurance with AIG, and then when, when AIG went under, uh, Henry Paulson, a former Goldman Sachs chief executive, who was now then working in the Treasury, head of the Treasury, uh, ca- called AIG in and said, you will pay 100 cents in the dollar to Goldman Sachs. You know, usually when you, when you go under, uh, your, your debtors are all lined up and you pay like 5 cents in the dollar. Goldman Sachs, the very next day, was paid out everything that ARG awarded it, 100 cents in the dollar. How about that? That's Goldman Sachs for you. Well, alhamdulillah, we've reached the end of the show. Jazakumullah for joining us. Make dua that whatever trading activity you got up to today has been profitable. And above all, halal. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Marukah Sahaba, the voice of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah.